0: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, and thanks for joining us again. Today, my guest is Alexander Maxwell, and we'll be talking about his book, Everyday Nationalism in Hungary, 1789 to 1867, published by de Gruyter in 2019. Alexander, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So a little bit about Alexander and then we'll get right down to the book Alexander Maxwell studied at the University of California Davis Georg August University in Göttingen Germany and Central European University in Budapest Hungary before completing his PhD at the University of Wisconsin Madison He held brief postdoctoral positions in Erfurt Swansea Reno and Bucharest before joining the faculty of Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. I think this must be my first interview from San Diego to New Zealand. Uh, and in New Zealand and Wellington, he is currently the Associate Professor of History. Uh, Alexander is the author of Choosing Slovakia, Slavic Hungary, the Czech Language, and Unintended Nationalism, published uh, by IB Taurus in twenty nine. Also, Patriots Against Fashion, Clothing and Nationalism in Europe's Age of Revolutions, published by Palgrave in 2014. He's published widely on Central European history, nationalism theory, and history pedagogy. So let's get started right away with our conversation about everyday nationalism. In Hungary, my first question uh, to you is what got you interested in the topic?
1: Well, it's um, sort of a, a funny story. I was reading a, a travel book by Jean Paget, who is a key figure in the social history, for anyone who does the social history of, of Hungary in the reform age. And he, he told the story about a, um, a theater company that put on a play and the play had a scene that took place at night. And so the curtain comes up and there's the set with the nighttime sky and the moon was painted with the man in the moon. The audience sees this, and they start to boo and hiss. What's the problem? The man in the moon doesn't have a mustache. And everyone was all upset about this German moon because a proper Hungarian moon would have a mustache. So the next day, the theater, uh, you know, uh, they change the set. The scene comes up, and uh, the curtain comes up in this scene, and the moon is repainted with a pair of moustaches. I think uh, Paget describes it as a pair of moustaches, the fiercest majar among them would have been out the <laughs> As the audience sees the, the moustache moon and they cheer and they say, uh, long live our Hungarian moon and confusion to all German moons forever. <laughs> now, uh, when I read that story, it uh, made me think of a conversation I'd had with my grandmother just a couple of weeks previously, uh, my grandmother had asked me uh, uh, just after the uh, September 11th attack in New York, did I still have my beard? Now, at that point, I did not have a beard. So I said no. And she said, oh, I'm so glad I can't imagine any American would want to have a beard. <laughs> just happened. So it, it got me thinking, because um, for my PhD, I had read, you know, all the all the canonical names of nationalism theory, you know, I had opinions about Anderson and hobsbawm and Smith and Roch and everyone else. And I'd read lots and lots of case studies. You know, I was well on my way to being the, you know, nationalism guy. But I hadn't ever read anything about nationalism and facial hair. Mm-hmm. But yet here it was in my sources, but also in my private life, that the the facial hair nationalism was alive and well. So it got me thinking that there was a, you know, there was a project there. So I I got this idea for for a book that I, in my own mind, titled in German. Uh, It was the uh, Nationalisierung des Alltags, which sounds better than the English equivalent I came up with, the nationalization of everyday life. Sounds better in German, Mm -hmm. I don't know what to tell you. Mm And uh, so I started researching on um on three dimensions of Altag. I started looking at the nationalization of food, the nationalization of clothing, and the nationalization of sexuality. So I worked on that for about 6 months and I had the following findings. Now, finding number 1, source material on national food is surprisingly hard to find. And when mm-hmm. I think about my personal life, food is being nationalized all the time. You know, oh, British food is terrible. Oh, do you like Italian food or French food? I prefer Chinese food. Everyone's thinking of food in national categories nowadays. But in the 19th century sources where I, you know, was really looking, I, I didn't find nothing, but I found next to nothing. So that, that was a bust. Mm-hmm. Finding number two, um, the nationalization of sexuality is hilarious. It's such an entertaining research project. It's just, you know, a barrel of laughs. You know, nationalism can bring out the crazy in people, but sex brings out the stupid in people. So the source material I was reading—it was just crazy, stupid. You know, everyone's fantasy of the national woman or the national man—and I mean, just really entertaining research.
0: Yeah, yeah. But, I, I mean, I, I I wanted to ask actually if I could, what what made you narrow down your time period then? Well, so me, I mean, you, let
1: you've let got. Me, let me finish <laughs> my story. Sure, sure. <laughs> me, no go ahead. Um, so this, uh, this national food, uh, national sexuality research is really entertaining. So I published a couple of articles on that and, you know, helped me get my job. And that's all great. Uh, and the third finding was the source material on national, um, national clothing is hyper abundant. It's a, just a fire hose of information. I wasn't so much trying to find sources as finding reasons to not use these sources or reasons to focus on those sources. Book chapters mm-hmm. started pouring in my mind right away. So uh, I ended up writing a book on the nationalization of clothing. So that was my second my second book. Right. But uh, the decision to write a book on the nationalization of clothing meant that any other dimension of everyday nationalism that I was working on, um, you know, didn't have a home. It wasn't part of a book project anymore. So I, you know, I was at that point on the job market and desperately trying to boost my publication record. So I published a lot of this stuff as, you know, as articles. And because I was doing my job hunt from Budapest, um, you know, if I would need to do any extra research on national this or national that that wasn't clothing, well, the, the case studies I tended to look at were uh, Hungarian case studies. So I published on national mustaches and national, you know, national cigar smoking and national landscapes and all this stuff. And at some point I realized, gosh, I've really got a lot of everyday nationalism in Hungary stuff going on. Maybe I should publish that as a book. So that's where the third book came from. Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, It's, you know, it's one sense, the gleanings of what was going to be the uh, nationalization of everyday life. Um, But uh, but yeah, Gary Hungarian focus, because the, I mean, the the original project for the everyday life, you know, that was going to be a European comparative project that was wildly overambitious. I mean, that wasn't a realistic project, Uh, but I ended up getting two different books out of the idea. So I guess it worked out in the end. And
0: and I guess Alexander, I mean, I'm I'm so intrigued, um, you know, to ask you what drew you to Hungary, and and especially in this kind of nineteenth uh, century world, I, you know, I read Robert Nemish's book, and it, it's also a world of, of sketches and really interesting. Um, but your your book, I mean, you have so <laughs> much material. Yeah, you have so. I mean, you have so much material. It's it's incredible how you manage to put everything together into the chapters. So. Now, I wonder if, if you could talk a little bit about um, what got you started with, with Hungarian cultural history.
1: Well, um, my original plan was to write a book about Czechoslovakism. That was going to be my first book. So I started researching the Slovak half of Czechoslovakism and just never got back to the Czech half. So that's how my first Slovak book came into being. Uh, but uh, the, thing, the, the big surprise for me in that book was just how widespread the Hungarian loyalties were. Uh, you know, my mm-hmm. country Slovaks, almost to a man, love the Hungarian homeland and are keen on it. And they have this vision of Greater Hungary that they'd like to be along, uh, be part of. But they don't want to live in a Magyarized Hungary. They want to live a in a you know in a Slavic Hungary or in a multilingual Hungary. So they fight with the you know Magyar aristocracy, but they're not fighting to leave Hungary. They're fighting to reform Hungary. I think in my book I say that Ludovic Stur is. It was better seen as a would-be Martin Luther King civil rights leader than as a, a would-be independence leader like, um, you know, Garibaldi or something. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I started reading about the Hungarian context just because I was interested to see if the Hungarians, you know, wh- what were they doing? You know, they're, they're, my Slovaks, they were really keen on being Hungarian. What were the Hungarians saying? So I started reading about the key Hungarian noblemen and I found them really engaging, interesting people, um, I got really interested in uh, a character named Miklós Veselini, uh, who was good friends with Secheny, and then from him I started reading Secheny, and I I came to genuinely admire Secheny. and mm. I just started drifting into this Hungarian research. Um, I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you behind that. Yeah, and, and well I, I mean I'm and I really enjoyed my life in Hungary, so you know I sort of was right. aging with this this city that I I grew very fond of. Right. Right. So could you introduce to our readers um,
0: and listeners how you lay out your chapters? I I know that you have the first couple of chapters on terminology and and a whole lot of method and and sort of the toolkit for nationalism studies. Um, But then you you move into wine and tobacco and sexuality and so forth. And so how did you decide to design that? And
1: um, what what are in your uh, seven chapters? Well, I wanted to look at different aspects of the nationalization of daily life. So, you know, the nationalization of this, nationalization of that. And then, um, you know, I had chapters on the things that, um, you know, and things that I chose to write about and thought were interesting. So there's, I'm not sure I can remember them all now. There's a chapter on national um, smoking and national tobacco. There's a chapter on national wine and the cult of Tokai. Um, of course, that leads into the non-Magyar Hungarians and the, uh, you know, Slovak attitudes towards brandy or German attitudes towards beer. Uh, from there, I got into national mustaches, which starts to introduce the gender component of the book. Um, the national mustache stuff is, of course, how I got on this project in the first place, right? Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, Pajé, I, I later found out that Pajé's story was told something like 15 different times. I uh, I, tra- I was able to trace earlier versions of the story. Interestingly, I couldn't find any Hungarian versions of the story. This seems to be a story that Germans tell about Hungarians rather than something Hungarians mm-hmm. tell about themselves. Anyway, um, so, I mean, that's how I got started on this project in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. the, then I, I talk about sexuality, and then I talk about clothing. So I ended up with the National Costume Chapter, which uh, does have a little bit of overlap with my... Uh, with a Hungarian section in the, in the clothing book. Mm -hmm. So um, Mm -hmm. I had an idea to write these things and I had, I had other ideas for possible chapters. I I wrote an article once about nationalized landscapes and, you know, the Pusta versus the mountains and that sort of thing. Um, And was able to found evidence uh, that sort of surprised me that Hungarians used to glorify their mountains, that the Pusta cult is actually um, rather recent. Uh, and in a way sort of pre-shadows the partition of hungary uh because by abandoning the mountains to the romanians and slavs to glorify the pushta it's it's sort of like they're giving up on these territories in a symbolic way so that was kind of fun Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and then i I saw that there was material for uh stuff on national um horseback riding you know if you look at the stereotypical hungarian in a say a political cartoon Okay, yes, he has a mustache. Yes, he wears the national costume. But he usually is wearing um, boots with spurs. And Paget talks about that. He's, he talks about everyone wanting to ask him about horses. And Seichini wrote a whole book about horses and the cult of the horse. And But I just decided not to pursue that. I wanted to focus on these things rather than those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also kind of a 19th century guy. So a lot of people hear this project and say, oh, you could talk about national sport. And I say, yes, I could. <laughs> I couldn't talk about national sport, but I chose not to because I just didn't want to read about sport. I just, from my own personal disinterest in sport. (laughs) So, uh, you know, that was just, uh, you know, my idiosyncratic choice as a, you know, as a, as a researcher. I'm curious, Alexander,
0: if I can ask how, how you decided to go with one nationality theory over another. I I know that you've, you've written a lot about um, Michael Billig and his theory of um, banal nationalism, and, and you you deal with Anderson, of course, and, and Brubaker, and some others. So maybe if you could introduce some of these theories and and then explain why you use one and not another, at, at least in specific cases and instances, as you're interpreting your sources.
1: Well, this particular book was supposed to also be a contribution in nationalism theory, and you know I hoped that people interested in Hungary would you know maybe read it and take an interest, but. You know, there's also, it's also written as if, um, you know, someone interested in nationalism theory could read the book and get ideas that you know they could apply to their own research on nationalism in Thailand or, you know, wherever. Um, so the, as you say, there's two introductory chapters. We'll talk about them in a bit, I guess. But the case study chapters on wine and tobacco and mustaches and so on, um, they both ended up having a two-part structure. So here's the story of how the mustache became nationalized. And then in the second half of the chapter, I say, okay. Well, what theory helps us explain this? Um, mm-hmm. So then I, I wander through uh, you know various nationalism theorists that I have found helpful, or you know who I, I think are bringing insight. And um, so I don't know, shall I shall I list my my three favorites? I've got three favorites. I, favorite I,
0: yeah, I know. I'd really like to know your hierarchy. I mean, uh, you, you certainly okay. seem so, seem to have some preferences, yeah, right? Top so.
1: nationalism theorist is Rogers Brubaker. Rogers Brubaker has shown us the path. He is the guy. <laughs> there are two types of nationalism scholars. There are people who are doing the Brubakerian approach, and there are people who are doing it wrong. I mean, he's the man. So that's the um, Brubaker's top dog. Uh, but you know, Brubaker's uh, main approach is uh, to analyze nationalism as uh as something that people are doing you know he wants to look at how people like it, 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 this great question of definition you know how do you define the nation Brubaker mm-hmm. says, don't ask that question ask how your historical actors define the nation you know uh how do you know how do your 19th century hungarians think about the, na- the nation how do the 19th century slovaks define the nation against the hungarians what about 19th century romanians and so instead of you as an analyst imposing your definition on the sources um, he, Brubaker says, let's look at definitions of nationalism and how they operate as, you know, as uh, things in politics. And Brubaker's correct. I think Brubaker's absolutely right that he's shown us the path. But of his predecessors, um, I think Anderson's definition is super helpful. Um, Anderson's definition, let's remember, is not just that the nation is an imagined community. Everyone remembers the imagined community. People don't always remember that he says, it's imagined in a particular way. It's inherently limited and sovereign. Inherently limited and sovereign. So the idea of nation is imagined. I think people understand that. So I won't dwell on that. But that the nation is limited is important, because you can then study the principle of limitation. Is the principle of limitation that you don't speak the right language? Is it that you don't have the right religion? is it that you uh aren't a citizen of a particular political structure there can be different principles of exclusion that compete with each other and i think um anderson's very wise to not list any particular principle of exclusion but just to say the nation is limited there is some principle of exclusion so i find that very helpful mm-hmm. uh, and then he says mm-hmm. the nation is sovereign and this is the bit that you know a lot of anderson's critics say well the you know, Star Trek fans are an imagined community. Yeah, okay, they are an imagined community, but are they sovereign? Do Star Trek, Star Trek fans imagine that the Star Trek fandom's wishes are, by definition, legitimate? That's what makes them uh, proper, uh, not a nation in the Andersonian definition. So I think it's important to remember those, those things as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, my, for my clothing book, I basically said, with Anderson, you can do everything you want. Um, and I, I don't think I use Brubaker as much as, as Anderson. Because I I was able to find clothing-related equivalents for inherently limited and sovereign and, you know, able to think about national clothing in that way. But if you are interested in nationalism and gender, then what you need in your life is Carol Pateman uh, and her book. uh, Well, she has two books pretty much on the same theme. Uh, The one is The Disorder of Women, and the famous one is The Sexual Contract. And it's, mm-hmm. she's kind of an interesting case because she doesn't really see herself as a nationalism theorist. I think she sees herself as a feminist political theorist. Right. But if you take her work on feminist political theory and apply it to nationalism, it fricking works. Um, so mm-hmm. I think with those three scholars, you pretty much have what you need.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I, am I'm, re- I'm really curious to know how you begin conceiving the history of, of commodities. And, you know, I, being familiar with mary newberger's work on balkan smoke um and thinking about a lot of the work that's coming out in in food on food and the history of food and food cultures so do, do you think you take a cultural angle to things like uh, cigars and cigarettes later on in the middle of the century or now, what, what is your what is your approach, and then what is your story, let's say, of, of Hungary's national tobacco, just to take an example? And maybe we can talk about wine as well.
1: Oh. Well, the, the story of tobacco uh, starts off as an uh, economic story. So the Hungarian monarchy, sorry, the Habsburg monarchy has a tobacco monopoly. And um, in most of the monarchy, tobacco doesn't grow. So it's a state import monopoly, and it's a way of raising tax. And it's all fine. But uh, Hungary grows its own tobacco, and the monopoly didn't suit the Hungarian tobacco growers. So there came to be a dispute over the proper rate of taxation and this, that, and the other thing. I'm afraid I'm economic history is not my main interest, and I may not have uh, you know, grasped all the nuances of, of uh, you know, early 19th century economic policy. But there was a dispute between Hungarian tobacco growers and the Habsburg monarchy over the best way to tax tobacco. Um, Mm. So during the period of this dispute, um, you know, trying to fight off the the Habsburg tobacco monopoly, um, there was this sort of became a cause celeb in Hungary that, you know, drink, smoke your Hungarian tobacco, don't, don't smoke the Austrian tobacco, blah, blah, blah. And I found, you know, lots of, fun cultural evidence of how that worked and it was really entertaining stuff. Um, but, um, there is, comes a point where the tobacco monopoly, you know, the Habsburg monarchy gives up on it. So it's fine. You, Hungarian producers can grow tobacco as they like, um, you know, the Ausgleich comes, you can do what you like, but, um, it, I, I suggest that the tobacco monopoly at that point, it, uh, or the culture of tobacco nationalism had kind of taken on a life of its own by then. And so, okay, how do you understand that? How it it functions once it's taken on a life of its own? And um, so, I think the you know the theory bit of that chapter, I say, well, okay, you know, can, you know, look at Marx, commodity fetishism, uh, you know, and I gave a sort of standard Marxist take, um, and I think it it helps, you know, it get, it gets you pretty far, but it doesn't right. all the way because you also get to this point where you have this, this cultural dimension that, um, well, okay, I, I could also be the, the deeper scholar of Marx than I am. I'm sure in the, in the wide panoply of Marxist thinking, there's people who've looked at cultural nationalism in detail. But uh, I found it more helpful to, to go in a more cultural, historical uh, dimension at that point. So I guess I, I leave Marx, a Marxist analysis behind pretty quickly. And Mm -hmm. in the wine chapter, it's a similar narrative of, okay, there's an economic reason, but then look how it quickly turns into this cultural thing. And uh, so I don't know, does that, does that answer your question?
0: Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see how the, especially in the tobacco chapter, tobacco becomes associated with aristocratic identity and especially male aristocratic identity. I'm wondering if you've found, um, evidence, you know, based on the, based on class and gender of, of female smoking habits and how that association came to be, at least the the male one in in which the
1: right, I mean, it's an excellent question. Um, And uh, the result is no, women are not supposed to smoke. (laughs) And, uh, and it's, it's interesting in terms of our um, Andersonian exclusion principle, because, you know, if the, if the only members, only people who smoke can be proper members of the nation. And women aren't supposed to smoke because of a gender rule. And how can a woman be a member of the nation? And the answer is, she can't. The nation is a national brotherhood, and so it's, it's a nice little story. Now, yeah. in, the, in the structure of the book, I didn't highlight the gender very much in the tobacco chapter. I saved the gender for later, and you know, chose to focus on other things. But in the article, um, the gender features prominently. And of course, what's really nice talking about the gender and. And cigars is uh, you know you get to talk about Freud and sometimes a cigar is more than a cigar. Um <laughs> uh, I had a I had a funny experience because uh, um, when I wrote the book I, I or when I wrote the article on on tobacco smoking I said something like um, well you might be tempted to regard the you know if if this if the cigar is a symbol both of masculinity and of the sovereign power of the national brotherhood you might be tempted to view it as a phallus. Um, But, you know, this wouldn't work for the following reasons. And so that was the structure of the argument I had. And uh, I had a reviewer who said, this is the most absurd thing I've ever read. There's no evidence whatsoever that anyone ever viewed the the cigar as a penis. And, Uh okay, well, I hadn't said penis. I had said phallus. So, <laughs> well, so I, I looked up, uh, I just Googled, uh, you know, penis phallus distinction, trying to find a quotation from some famous person who would distinguish the penis from the phallus for me. <laughs> and uh, it, it turned out that uh, uh, Slavoj Žižek had just what I needed. He said something about
0: oh no, the, not distinction, Zizek.
1: <laughs> the distinction between the penis as organ and phallus as symbol. So it was just what I needed. It was pithy, concise. And so this yeah. is the shameful story of how it was that I came to psych Slavoj,
0: <laughs> I yeah, and and and, <laughs> and and hopefully once and no more,
1: Alexander. <laughs> well, I gotta yeah. say, I, Zizek really had just what I needed to answer this reviewer. But... <laughs> that that's
0: that's that's really curious. Well, you know, I mean, there's other there's other choices, and and I guess that's that's something very curious to me in reading your book because you you have the full toolbox. And, and of course, the toolbox of nationalism studies and, and sort of cultural studies and crit theory. Um, I, I guess I have to ask a question about tokai and wine. So mm. after all, during this period that you're discussing in your book, we're, we are dealing with um, the Habsburg monarchy and, and the multi-ethnic and multi-confessional empire. So are, are there let's say, points of divergence or distinction between Austrian commodities and Ho- and Hungarian commodities or, let's say, uh, Viennese coffee versus Hungarian tokay or Austrian wine versus Hungarian tokay? And, and how, how do you read that one through the sources?
1: Well, I, um, I didn't focus very much on the, the broader imperial Habsburg context in this book, um, but I think maybe... Um, Something that is relevant to your question is that the cult of Tokai spreads beyond the Magyars to the Croats. Now, I'm I'm a bit, you know, it, it's difficult for anyone to write a properly inclusive history of Hungary because there's so many different languages spoken. And mm-hmm. okay, so I have excellent German. I have, you know, middlingly mediocre to good Hungarian, and you know, real, you know, low low advanced Slovak that's three very different Hungarian languages and none of it helps me with uh, Romanian. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's really hard to find someone who speaks all these languages equally well. Um, so, you know, I, I take refuge in my own being an imperfect scholar and the knowledge that, you know, the perfect scholars are hard to find, but mm-hmm. uh, the research I did do in Croatia, um, I just, it was so easy to find Tokai stuff. The cult of Tokai is, is, as far as I can tell really big among the Croatian democracy yeah. so right. that was interesting because uh, a lot of the national this national that story I told was okay the Majars have their national uh, their national wine and the Hungarian Germans don't want anything to do with it Hungarians have their national mustache and the, the Germans don't want anything to do with it or Slovaks don't want to do anything to do with it or you know whatever um, but in in the case of Tokai, the croats enthusiastically got on board and so that was sort of interesting
0: mhm and and i guess you know for the question about um mustaches and and you know hirsuteness and and then into your chapter 6 about national sexuality i'm i'm really curious um and you mentioned pateman's work uh, in how you map out let's say um non heteronormative cultures so this period seems to have at least in both racial separations, or at least a kind of binarism between male and female. Um, what kind of gender analysis do you follow? I mean, I mean I'm thinking of, of Emisha Lafferton's work on Mud Your Moustache, which comes a little bit later, but I guess your, your question is up to 1867, right? So yeah. when you introduce gender as a category of analysis, how then do you go about reading through the sources about national desire?
1: Well, there's just so many questions there. It's hard to know which way to jump first. Um, I have to say, I was so excited to see that somebody else had written on Hungarian mustaches, and then when I when I read Amish's piece, I was so disappointed because it's not really about mustaches <laughs> at all. It's, it's about it's about racial categories, and the the mustache is just sort of thrown to make it make it seem sexy. And my, I was really interested in frickin' actual mustaches, the hair that grows on the face. That was my.
0: We'll t- we'll we'll t- talk talk uh, about that. Talk, talk if, about that, please. The, the, yeah.
1: the, the racialism that, in, that she was interested in, I kind of didn't, didn't really touch on very much. Um, but the, the broader question about um, how to, what kind of gender history I do. Well, let me put it this way. Um, I think a lot of people who are interested in gender history are interested in writing subalterns back into the story. So uh, a lot of gender history is women's history, and people want to reclaim that women had a role in history. Now there's, uh, you know, uh, gay, trans, alphabet um, history, and it's about showing that gay, trans, et cetera, people also played a role and, you know, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that, that's all good. Um, but I think it's, it's nice to remember that you can apply the analysis of gender, not just to the excluded uh, subalterns or minorities, or, you know, however you wanna formulate that, but also to the, the dominant majority. The, the sort of straight white guy, gender influences him as well. And the main focus of my work is to look at patriots. Um, I'm looking at people who are promoting a national project. And okay, those people who promote the national project, what kind of uh, sexual content influences their national thinking? And mm-hmm. it it turns out that it isn't the, it, it isn't very subaltern. It isn't very uh, you know subversive. It's a highly mainstream vision of what uh, sexuality should be, and uh, so I was I was um, I was really able to make that point nicely, I thought, in the book because of uh, uh, Benkert slash Kurt the the man who invented the man who coined the word homosexual, was a Hungarian. Mm-hmm. He was a, right, a Hungarian citizen. 1869. and yeah. so he has this. I you know read the secondary literature on him, and he's a sort interesting guy. Um, he spent most of his time in Germany, but was very proud to be Hungarian, but he, he translated a bunch of patriotic poems into German, you know, as a, as a patriotic act. And, um, so I analyzed those poems and the poems I think, did he write poems of his own? I can't remember, but anyway, he was involved in publishing these Hungarian patriotic poems and they are utterly heteronormative. The Patriot man loves the Patriot woman. The Patriot woman is beautiful. The Patriot man is handsome. Hooray. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, utterly typical sort of hurrah patriotism. Um, and so if, <laughs> if Kaussmuret um the coiner of the term homosexual, a pioneer of gay rights, um, is totally uninterested in anything like that in his national sexuality, then I, mm. I felt justified in ignoring that. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think, though, that there is um, you know, gender scholars at some level are missing a trick. Uh, you know because you can study the the the, the non subalterns with those techniques. Uh, Joan Scott's uh, line is uh, gender is a useful category of analysis. It's a useful category of analysis for uh, for the mainstream people as well.
0: Mm-hmm. And so the patriot intellectuals, um, who were they? I mean I, I know if you read Petofi, for example, or Collard, um, are you focused on the sort of main elite, I guess, or what, you know, you have surveys as well, from what I understand in the book, what what sort of texts are you looking at um, to get into this, as you call it, the internal logic of national endogamy among the Hungarian mm-hmm. male aristocracy?
1: Well, I mean, the, the, big, the big problem for doing 19th century nationalism, I mean, the big question that nobody can come up with an answer to is... Um, is the problem of representativeness. So, you know, the people who write me tracts or pamphlets or essays or patriotic poems uh, have left behind this very interesting array of sources that we can analyze, uh, entertaining stuff. It's fun to read. It's interesting. It's insightful. But how typical were they? And on the one hand, the answer is we don't know (laughs) because we only know what we, we have sources on. But I think the, the, the new research on national indifference suggests probably not very typical at all. Um, I, I guess I'm in my own mind thinking that the, the key distinction is, is literacy. That people who can mm. read or write are different from people who can't. And That's interesting. By, by entering yeah. the world of letters, you are at some level entering a national world and that makes you different from the majority, from the illiterate majority. So what about mm-hmm. that illiterate majority? What were their national thoughts about? Well, we don't know. By definition, illiterate people don't leave sources behind. So you occasionally get, um, you know, a recorded conversation in a travel account or something like that. Um, but it's, 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 re- those aren't, you know, there's a representative uh, question arises there. And, you know, travel accounts also have their, their issues and problems. So, um I had thought that by looking at national clothing, you could get around this problem a bit because you'd see what clothes people were wearing. Uh, and then if the clothing was nationalized, then you'd know if ordinary people were feeling the national patriotism at all. But in practice, it doesn't help because you don't, you don't know the motive someone has for putting that piece of clothing on. So, you know, um, you know someone in the, in the countryside wearing a certain type of peasant blouse, maybe that's just the blouse from his village. Um, and okay. Someone in the capital city who wears that same costume to a formal event is making a political point, And for him, it's a national costume, but for the people in the countryside, you don't know if it's a national costume. So, um, yeah. my, my efforts to try and break this question of, uh, representativeness, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I haven't made much progress on that. And I think very few people have.
0: I wonder if you could if you could add a, a little more about that among Hungarian historians and, and their attention to fashion. I, I know um, Susa Sido's work, for example, or or, or Alice Freifeld's work. I, I, I guess this is a conundrum, as you mentioned. You know how how do we extend this idea of clothing as language, and how do we actually read intent? I mean, if if we reduce it to sort of essentialism, it seems to be a quest for Romantic nationalism, or or authenticity, or something like that. But I wonder if you if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how your understanding, as a historian and as a popular historian or cultural historian from below, these these sorts of languages and codes, especially about fashion.
1: Well, um, I think the main thing you need to know about um, reading national costumes is, uh, you know, that it's, it's the the language of clothing is. Um, you know is is more subtle and complex than you might think so you you have people who will say well this is the slovak national costume and you scratch and see why people actually wear it and it's much more complicated than that um in -hmm. particular you should mistrust the idea of folk costume the concept of folk costume is not very helpful um so um but insofar as they're they're a text to analyze you just you analyze them like any other text you know they have multiple meanings they have contextual meanings, and if you study that context, you can learn to read the code. So it's, you know, in that sense, much like reading any other type of source that you might mm-hmm. have to get interested in.
0: And and you mentioned the School of National Indifference, which, you know, the work of people like Tara Zara or Peter Judson or, or Jim Bjork. How, how, how does that help you, um, especially, you know, toward the end of your book? Um, reread the questions of patriotism and patriotic identity and enthusiasm and effervescence and those sorts of things. Um, are, are you are you looking at this period differently through that lens? Because the, the older nationalism scholarship, as you, as you know, and you've written about, goes back to Anderson and, and Gellner and even, let's say, to interwar Hungarian ethno-histories and ethnographers, right? So that's, that's a, a Hungarian question
1: for you. Well... particularly if you talk about competing national projects or the the finer subtleties of competing national projects, it's very difficult to avoid reifying the national community. So even in this conversation, you know, what did I say? Oh, the Croats joined the cult of Tokai as if all Croats are a homogenous mass. And that's, you know, clearly not the case. Uh, So I tried very much in this book to not talk about the Croats, but rather Croat patriots, and i meant with that phrase to mean those people who were part of the croat national project and thus not those people who although may classified as croat according to this or that ethnographic criteria were nationally indifferent and didn't feel um you know any affiliation to the, the national project um i think the, the main lesson we have to get from the national difference is um to know the extent of our research so you know you read ten patriots and you get a sense of what they're on about and you get a sense of what the national project is about and how it works and it's all very interesting and it's fun to write about and but okay who are we talking about the the um, applicability of what you're finding only applies to those people who are part of the national project and so my you know sort of shorthand in my own mind is it only applies to people who are literate and the illiterate peasants don't care about it. Um, so in a society where most people are are plowing peasants or illiterate peasants, then you have to remember that your study of the national imagination is the, you know, the study of a, you know, of a small club of people, not the study of a mass movement necessarily.
0: Let, let me, let me ask it again. I'll stop and do this and we'll, we'll excerpt that. So let me ask a question about, uh, let me start over. Alexander, let me ask you a question about, um, everyday nationalism and desire as it connects to marriage. So you mentioned that um, it was a big factor in talking about literacy. I'm wondering if you could speak to your material culture sources and your commodities uh, and tell us a little bit more about how you figure out desire, the history of desire. Is desire contingent on same-sex relationships? Is it contingent on marriage? Um, that's my question. I'm I'm wondering if this is a Hungarian thing or, or if, if there's something more to it.
1: So you mean, you mean sexual desire?
0: Yes. So you're, you're describing national sexuality in a Hungarian way. And the statistics, at least, you know, around the turn of the century indicate that there are very few, um, cross confessional marriages and very few, let's say, um, cross national marriages in the Hungarian case.
1: Well, I mean, the thing I was really interested in is how many cross-national marriages are there? And I, I couldn't find statistics on that. The Statistics are about the cross-confessionalism, which was uh, you know, a really lively issue in Hungarian politics, or so I found out. And um, so I have a discussion of those statistics to ask, do the cross-confessional statistics shed any light on how much cross-national marriage there was? And the answer was, uh, it's really hard to say, um, these sort of statistical analyses, they quickly, you know, if you, if you scratch the surface of the statistics at all, then you come up with all sorts of confusions. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to know about the, you know, the desire of an individual person from, uh, you know, from looking at those statistics. I guess mm-hmm. it makes some sense to me that people are going to marry people they can communicate with. So I guess I, I don't find it surprising that, you know, Slovaks tend to marry Slovaks and Romanians tend to marry Romanians at some level. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's so much bilingualism or multilingualism that, you know, I guess it's also not surprising that uh, people marry people in their village or people in their city from, uh, from another group. But uh, you also, you know, there's a difficulty because um, a lot of times people uh, ask the bride to convert to the groom's religion. So, right. yeah, sure, I will marry if you will convert to Roman Catholicism. And so then people convert to Roman Catholicism and it's not a cross-national or cross-confessional marriage at all in the statistics. So, uh, you know, it's really, um, it's really tricky to yeah, draw I... firm conclusions from the, you know, the, the, the macro level statistics, which is why yeah. in that chapter, I said, okay, let's leave the statistics behind and look at the patriotic imagination. What are the national folk songs, to, you know, the national poets say? And, you know uh, you know romance and love is a very popular theme in <laughs> of uh, 19th century patriotic poem people are always uh, poetry people are always extolling the beauty of the national woman and extolling mm-hmm. the, the handsome you know manliness of the handsome national man and as I say very entertaining research I mean it's really really fun stuff to, to look at and, uh, and what
0: kind of what kind of research would you like to see on this popular level? I mean, I wonder if you might talk about your historiographical um, contributions and, and not just your work, but what you would, you know, sort of like the field to be doing in this in this um, genre.
1: Well, I, I personally find it interesting to look at this, um, you know, nationalism as lived experience. Uh, it seems to me a lot of people are are a little over interested in the desire to found a state. There's a lot of sort of political sciencey, okay, what does it have to do with state formation? Um, and I think there's lots of, you know, fun, entertaining, interesting stuff to read about um, how nationalism affects people in their in their daily lives or, you know, in, in more local contexts. So I guess I'm, you know, part of my uh, scholarly agenda is to move away from, from statehood and look at these more cultural, cultural things. But um, the other thing I think the historiography would do well to think about is this: um, you know, in the in the nineteen fifties, say, or nineteen sixties, there were lots of you know narratives of national awakening, where you know the early patriots came up with national stories, and then they they found interest groups that eventually create a state, and you get this rock ABC model or variants on the rock model or whatever, and um, and so lots of people have written narratives with this sort of teleological um, structure that uh, the early patriots are always pointing to the state in the end. And then um, a lot of people became very dissatisfied with that. They said, uh, you know, there's no contingency here. There's, it's all teleological. This is a problem. We shouldn't do history like this. And so the historiography has then jumped to other questions. So there's lots of terrific work being done about city loyalties, you know, about uh, the city of Bratislava and how people feel there, or uh, the city of Thessaloniki and the different communities there. Lviv seems to be a, or Lvov, Lviv, Lemberg, should I say, seems to be a a favorite site for this sort of analysis. Or people do historiography of um, of regionalism, you know, that I'm so proud to be from Bukovina, or what does it mean to be Transylvanian? Or even uh, Namish. Point. I mean, one of the things I really liked about the Namish book you mentioned is he talks about a region that doesn't have a strong regional identity. You know, he's not talking about crown on this or crown on that. He's just, let's hang out yeah. with these few counties. And he kind of ignores the minister questions entirely. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a very wonderful, entertaining book, and I liked it very much.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, yeah.
1: But, I mean, the, the basically, but his idea is instead of looking at the nation, let's look at the provinces. Let's look at provincial life. And, okay, so terrific stuff. I enjoy this research. I respect it. I think it's good. But it it isn't necessarily research about nationalism anymore. It's research mm-hmm. about non-nationalism. It's research about national indifference. There's lots of stuff nowadays about imperial loyalties. Peter Jetson's new book uh, about mm-hmm. the, the Habsburg Empire. What does he call it? A, a reinterpretation?
0: Yes. A new history. It. Yes. The, the The Harvard title is a new history.
1: Well... Um, I don't know. I I thought the first half of that book was Judson at his brilliant, you know, his characteristic brilliance. And I thought the second half of the book, um, he was sort of trying to make everything fit his story a little bit. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I really respect his excellent work. He's written a whole slew of fabulous uh, monographs. But I thought the half of that wasn't, wasn't his best work. But the point I wanted to make was just, it's a book about imperial loyalties, which is uh, something that competes with nationalism rather than nationalism itself. So mm-hmm. I understand that people are are dissatisfied with the teleological narratives that, you know, came out from the 50s or 60s, or that people from Central Europe are dissatisfied with the teleological narratives they were had crammed down their throats in high school or whatever. Mm-hmm. But... Um, and so people have responded by looking at non-national narratives that you know regionalism or you know national difference or whatever. but let's look at actual nationalism. Let's try to make a story of national awakening, a story of about nationalism in the nineteenth century that really puts nationalism in the center without using this theological narrative. can't can't we try and do that? And uh, it seems yeah. only one <laughs> I read everybody yeah,
0: no, it's... It's it, it's it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I'm thinking about work on culture and cultural appropriation as well. So, you don't have to have a linear direction at, at all, and that leads me to my question: uh, If you can suggest other works, maybe for our listeners here in, in New Books East, East European Studies, what what might you suggest on on
1: top of your own book for people well, to read? Okay, I've got I've got two books to recommend. Um, the one book is uh, Kate Brown's um, Biography of No Place, uh, which is about uh, Volhynia. <laughs> Such a good book. Um, but it's, it's interesting because it's not even necessarily, I don't think she's even trying to write a book about nationalism. She's trying to write a book about, you know, the transformation of the Soviet Union. And, uh, but <laughs> she has a chapter on so her part of the world in the early Soviet period, and the, the Soviet Union is putting together this um policy and trying to nationalize the peasantry, and the peasants just don't care. So what do they care about? And with backbreaking uh, local research, she sketches out what was going on in in her territory at the time, and she makes the sort of non-national world come so vividly alive. And then um, analyzes the you know the Soviet patriot bureaucrat trying to inculcate nationalism and <laughs> what kind of response they met with. I I think it's just an incredible book, um, so I really would recommend that. Um, another book I I want to want to plug for a bit is uh, there's a scholar named uh, Augustin Berets, who's a Hungarian scholar and he's written a book on the politics of early language teaching. Hungarian in the Primary Schools of the Late Dual Monarchy. And it's about the linguistic loyalties in Hungarian schools. And it, it just reaches a, a subtlety, both in its analysis of language and its analysis of nationalism, that's, that's really rare. So mm-hmm. I, I, I read that book only after my hungry book came out. So I'm, I'm afraid I, my book doesn't show the, the influence of that book at all, just because I, I didn't read it in time. But right. it's, it's really good, and uh, he should be better known. Um right. I have him, you know, that he's he's not a famous scholar as far as I know, but he should be. Yeah, his his
0: his, his his work is really interesting, and, and it's on academia.edu, and and of course all the articles as well. Um, I have to ask you, Alexander, because we're really running out of time. If you could give us maybe two minutes about your current research on Habsburg Panslavism. Plan-
1: well, the main thing I'm interested in is the linguistic ideologies these days. I'm obsessed and have been for years with the language-dialect dichotomy. What's a language? What's a dialect? How do people formulate language dialect? What do people mean by calling a, a linguistic variety a language or a dialect? So I've been um, been looking at that. And um, so I'm writing a book on those people who believed that all Slavs spoke one language and who therefore believed that Russian, Polish, Czech, et cetera, were merely dialects or sub-dialects of that Slavic language. And what were the political consequences of that belief? You know, how do you engage in language planning under those, under those initial uh, assumptions? And what does linguistic activism look like under those initial assumptions? And um, well, one of the things I'm finding so far is <laughs> the secondary literature is incredibly unhelpful because you know people are some people are willing to be culturally constructivist about the nation but nobody's as far as i can tell maybe apart from uh Beres, are looking at the social construction of the language you know the idea that mm-hmm. the slovak language is the product of conscious patriotic construction you know right. people take the language for granted and um so they read primary they read primary sources where people say you know the slovak dialect uh, the need to write in the slovak dialect and I say, well, what he really means is language, and just change the primary sources. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm having to, you know, just go back to the primary the, the primary sources and rethink everything from scratch. Um, so that's what I'm wrestling with these days. I hope to yeah. have a book on Habsburg Pan-Slavism in uh, in another few years.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I, there's so much I think that remains to be done, and. In- in the in the world of terminological confusion um, on, on nationalism, and, and as you mentioned, the, the work of Brubaker, these ideas of, of groups without uh, groupism. This is um, still, I think, a, a very interesting field for um, for scholars to follow. I really want to thank you, Alexander Maxwell, for joining us here on the podcast today. This book is called Everyday Nationalism in Hungary. 1789 to 1867, published with de Greuter in 2019. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and thanks so much for taking the time to join us, Alexander, today.
1: No, thank you much for having me. I enjoyed it very much.
0: And I'm your host, Stephen Siegel, here at the New Books Network and New Books in Eastern European Studies. Until next time.